Hey, good morning, City Church. It's good to be here. It's an honor to be able to, to preach and to share with you guys this morning. And before I get started in Acts chapter 20, I got to tell one story about Pastor Keith. Uh, you know, Keith and I have known each other for about 10 or 11 years, as he said before. And there's one thing that I would describe Keith as. I think most of you would agree with me. He's passionate, right? He's a passionate person. He's passionate about Jesus. He's passionate about the lost. He's passionate about his family. He's passionate about music. He's, he's passionate about everything, right? And I remember one time I was playing basketball down by Dallas Theological Seminary. And you remember this? Maybe you do, maybe you don't. But, but I'm playing basketball, and I see this guy in, you know, jogging pants, and he's just, like, running, right, just killing it, running as fast as he could around the, around the path there, going hard. And, and I see from a distance that it's, it's Keith. He sees me over there playing basketball. He stops. He's out of breath, right? And he says, man, what are you guys doing? We're playing basketball. He's like, oh, I'll, I'll join. And I'm like, okay, like, I've just played two games. I'm out of breath. You've just ran probably five miles, and you're ready to go. He's all this energy. Gets on the court, competes, plays, and I'm pretty sure shares the gospel, invites these guys to church. I mean, that's Keith, right? He probably ran a half marathon, but still wants to engage with people, wants to, right, minister to people through the gospel. And, and that's Keith in, in a nutshell. He loves Jesus. He wants to spend his life for the sake of who Jesus is in his call. And as a church, you guys have a great couple leading and caring and shepherding you guys and Keith and Kendall. I hope you guys pray for them. I hope you guys care for them and love them because uh, leadership and ministry, leadership in general is tough and it's hard. And so I hope that you guys pray for them regularly and their family as they care and they love you guys. And so um, it's an honor to be here. I want to say thank you as well from, from our family to you because you guys are one of the first churches and Keith was one of the very first people who encouraged us as we felt a call to church plant in Taiwan and just as he said before, everything that, that we do by God's grace to see churches planted, you guys are a part of that story. Um, you guys are a part of what happens in Taiwan and seeing the unreached reach for the sake of the gospel. So if you guys have your Bibles this morning, if you have your phones, we're going to be in Acts chapter 20. Uh, I know that over the past couple of weeks or maybe months, you guys have been in the book of Acts. How, have you guys been enjoying that? I mean, the book of Acts is one of my favorite books. It's, it's kind of like that movie that you get to watch this clip by clip over the span of many years compressed in a short amount of time, uh, what the early church was able to do, compelled and gripped by the power of the Holy Spirit. You know, in fact, uh, historians, secular historians, look back at this time of Christianity, and, and they write about how astonished they were to see a movement like this, a, a movement that broke out in the Roman Empire, that turned the empire on its head, and it was centered around a crucified Jewish carpenter named Jesus Christ. Although he was resurrected, they didn't believe that, but they were astonished to see this kind of movement. And so Acts talks about the early church and what God did through them and what he wants to continue to do through his church today, right? And last week, I know that Pastor Keith, he preached on boldness and he laid out some really helpful points on what it looks like for us to become more bold in sharing our faith and what we need to grow in in order to be bold. And this week, we're going to pick it up in Acts chapter 20. Acts chapter 20, we're not going to cover the whole uh, the section of scripture, but I'm going to cover specifically verses 22 through the end of the chapter. Now in Acts chapter 20, just to bring us up to speed, we have the apostle Paul and the apostle Paul, if you know, he was a guy that lived his life spent for the glory of God. And in this moment in the book of Acts, he's on his third missionary journey on his way back home. He says he's hurrying back to Jerusalem for the day of Pentecost. And, and one thing to know about the Apostle Paul, is that he says that the only thing he's aware of that's waiting for him in Jerusalem is suffering. 
So we have this guy who is excitedly hurrying back to this place where all he knows is going to be suffering and persecution. And so as he's on his way back, he, he stops for a moment because even though he's going back to Jerusalem, he knows he's not going to make it out alive. He says, man, I got to stop. And I, and I got to talk to these men who I discipled. I got to talk to these men who are leading this church in one of the most influential cities in the Roman Empire called Ephesus. So he calls these men. He says, man, would you guys come to me? Because I want to give you kind of my farewell speech because I know that I will not make it out of this one alive. So we're going to be in Acts chapter 20. Would you guys pray with me this morning? Holy Spirit, we thank you for your word. We thank you that um, it's your word that brings fruit in our life. It's your word that brings clarity. And Holy Spirit, we, we recognize and we see that even in creation, you bring order where there's chaos. You bring fullness where there's emptiness. And so I'm, I'm asking you, Holy Spirit, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be pleasing to you. Oh God, my rock and my redeemer, would you bring fullness this morning, Holy Spirit? Would you bring clarity as we speak about the word and the life of the Apostle Paul? And it's in your name we pray. Amen. Amen. November, seven years ago, one of my heroes, my mentors in the faith, he passed away suddenly. He was jogging in California, and he had a heart attack. He was 54 years old. His name was Don Gilman, and uh, he was the leader of YWAM Taiwan. He was also the leader of YWAM uh, Frontier Missions in the Far East, and he was a man that lived his life for the glory of God. In fact, there was a time where we had a memorial service for Don, and I'm not sure if you've ever been a part of something like this, but they actually had two services for him, one in California where he grew up and where he was raised, and the other in Taiwan where he served for over 20 years, the Taiwanese people. And I was sitting in that memorial service. It was, it was emotional. I mean, you had people flying from all over the world to, see, to sit here to honor this man. You had Taiwanese. You had Americans. You had foreigners who came in just to honor the life of Don. And there was one common theme that rang throughout every single person that spoke about him. They got up and they spoke about him as a father. They spoke about him as a brother. They spoke about him as a friend. They spoke about him as a dad. And, and I remember there's one thing that they all said, and one thing that rang true throughout his life was that Don lived his life passionately for one purpose, for the glory of God. And as I sat there, it was emotional. I mean, and he was one of my close friends. In fact, one of his uh, sons, Joel, is a guy that I would consider my brother. I've actually been able to pastor with him over the past five years in Pennsylvania. And as I sat there, emotional as it was, I sat there thinking, man, what would it be like for Don to stand here this morning? And what would it be like for him to actually share with us what he would charge us with knowing that he's going to pass away? Like, what would he say in this moment? I would love to hear what he would say knowing that he wouldn't be around that much longer. And guys, this morning in Acts chapter 20, we have this opportunity. Paul knows he's going to die. Paul knows that he's going to Jerusalem and he most likely is going to lose his life. And he's going to lay out for us what it looks like to live a life poured out for the sake of the gospel. And so let's pick it up in verse 22. He says this, And now I am on my way to Jerusalem, compelled by the Spirit, not knowing what I will encounter there, except that in every town the Holy Spirit warns me that chains and afflictions are waiting for me. Paul first begins telling us and reminding us, he says that right now in his life, he is bound. That word compelled means bound by the Spirit. That he is propelled by the Spirit to go to a place that only suffering and persecutions are awaiting for him. And I wonder, as I read this, I was, I was convicted in saying, I mean, how many of us would really listen to that kind of word of the Lord? 
that if someone said, hey, hey, brother or sister, I got a word of God for you. I feel like the Spirit's telling me that the place that he's sending you to or the place that he's calling you to is a ministry where all there is going to be is suffering and all there's going to be is persecution, right? I don't know how many of us would be encouraged by that. But Paul reminds us in this verse, he says that the Spirit speaks to us because Christianity is not about our comfort, ultimately. Christianity is not about our comfort, and I and I know that we live in the most comfortable place in the world. Even driving uh, here in Dallas as we got out of the airplane, I was like, "Kids, get ready! Dallas is a place where you can have everything you want. Like you got food, you got sports, you got cars, you got houses, and and there's a massive need in Dallas. There's a massive need, but we live in a place that's completely comfortable. And if we're not careful, we'll we'll miss the fact that Christianity is about our surrender, about our obedience, not about necessarily our, our happiness or about our comfort. And so Paul says that I am bound, I'm compelled by the Spirit to go to a place where all I know is suffering and persecution. You know, Jesus tells us in the Gospels, he says that those of us who try to save our lives will lose it, but those of us who lose it for the sake of the gospel will find it. And Paul talks about that here. There's a story of a Russian church planter. He was planting churches in Russia, and, and he was getting uh, convicted by the authorities, and they'd bring it in. And for a season, he said that, I was kind of afraid, and so I tried to hide, and I tried to be covert. And I get it. Probably in nations where you're being persecuted for your faith like that, you probably need to be. But for him, he was reading the Gospels, and he got to that place where he said, Jesus said, if those who try to save their lives will lose it, but those who lose their lives for the sake of the Gospel will find it. He said, I began to just experience this freedom that I don't need to be afraid of death anymore. And so he began to preach more publicly. He began to plant churches more publicly. One day he got called into the authorities' office and they began to threaten him with death. And when he told them that he wasn't afraid of death anymore and they rightfully couldn't kill him or convict him, he said the country became more open than anything else in the world. It became more open to him. He started preaching more boldly, started planting churches more boldly just because he no longer was afraid to die for his faith. And so Paul reminds us of the same way that Christians, brothers and sisters, we are bound by the Spirit to go wherever Jesus calls us, even if it's hard, even if it's difficult. And I don't know, maybe, maybe God is trying to get your attention. Maybe he's trying to call you to something that's difficult, that's hard, but, but we're not listening because all we think that God's called us to is something that's really easy. Maybe he wants to bring you to a place that might be difficult so we might rely on his power and not our own. And you might be asking the question, well, how could I ever get to a place? How, how could I be like the Apostle Paul where I'd be willing to go to the hardest Go to the darkest places. Go to a place that the Spirit said there's only suffering and there's only persecution. I think he gives us his answer. If you go to verse 23 through 24, he says this. But I, or verse 24, I consider my life of no value to myself. My purpose is to finish my course in the ministry I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of God's grace. I think the reason that Paul could live his life the way that he did is because he says, I count my life of no value to myself. The only purpose that I have is to finish my course and live for the gospel. Now, I know that you and I, we live in a culture, we live in a world where everything tells you that this world exists for you, right? And everything says that this universe is for you. And it's not something that necessarily we have to learn. It's not something necessarily that we're taught. It's something that's deep in our hearts, I remember when one of my children had uh, one of their birthdays. I can't remember which one it was, but all these presents are on the table. Maybe you experienced this. And, and, and it's for my daughter, for, for, for example. And all the presents are there, but then the two brothers run up, and they're just like, yes, presents. And it's like, no, this is for your sister. Wait, where's mine? 
No, you don't, no, no, this isn't, this isn't about you. This is about, this is about her. No, no, no. Where are my presence, right? Because they've been taught or they believe that this world exists for them. I mean, if you could imagine, maybe you're watching an NBA basketball game and you see the towel boy run out on the floor and he's wiping the sweat off the floor and he just gets up and he's just waiting for your applause, being like, did you just see what I did? I mean, I took this towel and I wiped this sweat off the floor, man, and I put it back and the floor is dry and squeaky clean. You think, what are you talking about? Like you have these athletes who are dunking and jumping and shooting and this towel boy saying, where is my glory? But you know, we do the same thing when we look at creator God, we look at the majestic son of God and we say, you know what, God, actually my life, this universe, this world is not actually for you. It's about me. We do the same exact thing. In fact, right now, I would say that our culture, what they're feeding you is this lie of secularism. I don't know if you're familiar with that term secularism, but it's a belief that there's no God and there's no religion, but it's all about you. And what they'll tell you is that this life is about you becoming a better version of yourself. That this life is about you just basically protecting your environment so that nothing makes you unhappy, nothing makes it difficult for you, nothing makes you have a lower self-esteem. And the call of Jesus, and Paul reminds us, is not to make our lives about us, but the call is to come and die and to make our lives about Jesus. John Calvin says this, he says, it's a filthy thing for us to be so holden with a blind desire to live that we lose the causes for life itself. That there's this weird, inordinate desire that we have to live so much that we actually forget what living is actually about. And it's not something that's going to go away. I mean, you think about uh, Instagram and Facebook. Not that those things are evil, but I mean, if we're honest, guys, we, we are the generation that's responsible for the selfie. I was talking to my kids. It's like some people went to war. Some people invented, you know, uh, space shuttles. We have the selfie, you know. It's a claim to fame because we are so enamored. We're so obsessed with our own glory and our own ego. And we choose to live for that day in and day out. We project an image because we think that's what life is all about. In fact, right now you, you have this thing in California where some brides are now asking their attendants to have cosmetic skin treatments where not just the bride, but their bridesmaids, we want you all to go get plastic surgery because we want this day to look like something. We want to project an image. And Paul says that if you live your life for your ego, if you live your life for yourself, you will have no kingdom impact and you will not live a life that's spent for the sake of the gospel. But notice that Paul says this. He says, I consider my life of no value to myself. He doesn't say that your life has no value. He doesn't say that we're invaluable because he actually tells us later on what kind of value we actually have. If you go down to verse 28, he says this, the spirit has appointed you as overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. That's your value. That Your value isn't to live for yourself, but your value is to live for the God who purchased you with his own blood. I mean, imagine, imagine this. Imagine that you had two farmers and they both have sheep. And because, you know, sheep are pretty violent creatures, you have uh, one of the sheep cross over into the other farmer's field and accidentally kill one of the farmer's other animals. And so the farmer comes to the other farmer and says, listen, man, your sheep came over to my field. He killed one of my animals. And so, you know, the law, it's a, it's a sheep for a sheep. So I need you to kill the sheep. I'll get the wool and I'll make the money. And the farmer says, no. I don't want my sheep to die. I'll die in its place. How absurd is that? 
you know, what kind of, what kind of value does a sheep have to an actual human being? Like, 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 bro, you have your whole life to live for. You have a family. Like, you have all this worth, all this stuff that you can bring to society and the community, and you're gonna give it up for this sheep? But that's exactly what the scriptures tell us we are. That, that, that compared to the infinite, worthy, majestic Son of God, that we are just sheep. We are, we are creatures. We are not impressive compared to the all-worthy, all-impressive Son of God, Jesus. And what he said, he said, when he looked at your life, he looked at my sin, he looked at our predicament and where we're at, he said, no, I don't want them to die. I will step in their place and give my life for them. And so Paul says, man, listen, don't live your life for yourself but live your life for the person and the God who gave himself for you. And so if you want to live a life poured out for the sake of the gospel, number one, Paul says, don't live for your own ego. It's too shallow. It's too short. It's too small. Live your life for something bigger poured out for the God, the Savior who died for you. If we go on in verses 25 through 31, he says this, And now I know that none of you among whom I went about preaching the kingdom will ever see me again. Therefore, I declare to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all of you, because I did not avoid declaring to you the whole plan of God. Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has appointed you as overseers. Two times in this text, Paul is going to tell us to be on guard or be alert. And that word means to pay attention. Um, the, the scriptures tell us in 1 Peter chapter 5 that the, that the enemy of our faith is a prowling lion looking for someone who he can devour. And then I want to tell you guys that there is a spiritual enemy, a real spiritual enemy who wants to destroy your faith, that he wants to crush you under the weight of either legalism, trying to make yourself right before God, or he wants to to lure you with the enticement of sin and say, you can just live however you want. He wants to destroy your confidence and your faith and your effectiveness of living for Jesus. So so Paul says, be alert, be on guard. Just this past week, I was, uh, I was in Colorado with my family. We've been on vacation. And we were hiking in the mountains in Colorado. I was there with my two sons. And you really have to be alert. Like, there's mountain lions there. You got bears. You got, I mean, even you have some deer that are kind of crazy. And they'll just sprint out right in front of you. So you got to be alert. You got to be on guard. And so we're walking around. And I remember my, my daughter and my son, like, my, we, we had to whisper, right? So everything was a whisper. It's like, go this way. Or go this way. It's like, oh, I'm pretty sure they can smell us before they can hear us, but it's okay. Let's just still whisper. But you're on guard. You want to be alert, right? You want to, you want to see what's around you because you know that at any moment, the danger is actually really real. And I'm like, man, Lord, I wonder if I live my Christian life the same way. That I was alert, that I was on guard, that I was aware that the danger of a real spiritual enemy is very real. It's very evident and it's very relevant right now to the way that I'm living my life. And so Paul gives us two ways really quickly of how we're supposed to be on guard, all right? The first thing that he says is in verse 25, in verse 26, excuse me, verse uh, verse 28. He says, be on guard for yourselves. You know, the two ways I think that Satan lures us away from Jesus is number one, our own personal holiness, that he wants us to get distracted and live lives that actually uh, destroy the reputation of Christ. And so Paul, the first thing that he says is, I want you to be on guard for yourself, you know, what if, what if I left here today, I was, I was preaching and left here and I took my wedding ring off and you saw me, you saw me later today and took my wedding ring off and I was acting like a complete bachelor, you know, it's downtown Dallas and living it up. I mean, you probably would be appalled, probably be upset. You'd be angry. I'm pretty sure. And rightly so. 
And yet, I think that's what happens sometimes in our life when we begin to tell Jesus that you can be Lord over all of these areas of my life, but not this one. Not this one. You know, this one, this is the, this is the area that I want to control. This is the one that I want to be Lord over. And so Paul tells the Ephesian elders, listen, guys, and listen, church, you've got to continue to use the Bible, not just as a magnifying glass towards other people's sin. You do that really well, but you need to use it a mirror for your own. And I think, man, historically, I mean, you guys are aware of this just as much as I am. Historically, the church has been really good at using scripture as a magnifying glass toward other people's sin, but not as good as using it a mirror for our own. And Paul knows that, that, that movements of Christianity, that, that movements of church planting are heavily influenced by the leaders who lead them. And so Paul tells the elders, guys, listen, you need to watch your lives. And you need to make sure that you're allowing the lordship of Christ over all of your lives, not just some aspects of your life. Just recently, there have been three or four big time pastors who have fallen uh, due to immorality. Actually, one pastor, I don't know if you guys heard this, one pastor actually, it was found out that he tried to hire hitmen to get people who didn't agree with him or who lashed out at his teaching. I mean, that's just another level, right? And we say, wow, and, and I think that we should be appalled by that. But, but, but I'm saying if we don't, we don't watch our lives if we begin to allow what we believe about scripture and the way that we live our life to have this huge massive gap it's just a couple steps to that point it's just a couple steps so paul says brothers and sisters allow scripture to continue to be this mirror in your life of what holiness of what godliness looks like allow it to convict you allow it to comfort you allow it to exhort you encourage you to live a life that demands a gospel response. I, I know that holiness isn't a popular term. I know it's not something that we talk about. I think in our culture, holiness is seen as oppressive. It's seen as archaic. We don't really talk about it very much in pop culture. And, and I think even in Christian, we're uncomfortable talking about holiness. And like I said, I've been traveling with my family. I've flown in planes with small kids more than I'd probably like to in my whole year or these past couple weeks, um, even though they've been, they've been amazing. Traveling is just difficult at times. Um, and I was sitting on the plane, and the last couple of flights have been really turbulent. I don't know if you guys like turbulence in planes. I don't know if that freaks you out. But I don't know if anybody actually likes it. But you're sitting there, and I'm thinking, we're in this metal tube, like 30,000 feet above the air, right? And, and I, can, I can see outside my window, and I know that the only thing that is separating me from my death in 30,000s is like this much of metal. Now, if you're an engineer, I know there's way more than that. But in my mind, that's all there is. And the plane, and we were like violently shaking, and you have people who are, you know, reading, and, and they're trying to talk, and it's like completely normal, and no one is freaking out. You know why? Because no one else is. And I think that's how we look at sin sometimes in holiness, that, well, if everybody else is doing it, this must be normal. Like, if looking at pornography is normal, my brother or my friend does it, well then, isn't that just normal? Isn't that okay? Or... Man, if, if this person can, can drink too much here, if this person can gossip here, if, man, I'm comparing my life to a pastor or a leader, I know if they're doing it, it must be okay, right? And Paul says, no, you got to allow scripture, the gospel to be a mirror to your life, to call you to repent and believe again of the good news. Holiness, this word, is just becoming more and more like him. More and more like him. That the New Testament says that the Spirit is committed to our lives looking more and more like Jesus. And one of my favorite passages, if you can turn there, is John chapter 15. John chapter 15, verses 1 through 3, 
Jesus says this, that I'm the true vine and my father is the gardener. Every branch in me that does not produce fruit, he removes and he prunes every branch that produces fruit so that it will produce more fruit. If you're familiar with that verse, you know that Jesus says that his father is the gardener. He's the true vine and we are the branches that that Jesus says that a lot of times growth in our life or becoming more and more like Jesus. It includes suffering. It includes hardship. And what I love about this picture is that Jesus calls the father the gardener. Any of you guys like to garden or like to do stuff? Okay. Don't ever let me touch your plants. I am horrible at it. We, we uh, owned a home in Pennsylvania, and one day it looked like the Garden of Eden when we bought it, and the next day it looked like after the fall, I'm pretty sure. I am horrible at, at, at gardening because what you have to do as a gardener, you have to be really careful. Right? You, have, you have to be sure that what you're pruning or what you're cutting out doesn't actually choke out the life of the plant. And so what Jesus tells us is about your life and my life, that the Father sovereignly is working through your circumstances. He's sovereignly working through your difficulties, your suffering, your victories, your sorrow, to make sure that he's pruning away that stuff that chokes out life so that new life may come. And I wonder if, if me or you, you might be just resisting the Father right now because he's, he is narrowing in on this area of your heart that you know needs to be cut away and pruned, but it is so close and you need, and me and I, you and I need to just surrender to that and say, God, we know that you're pruning this so that new life may come forth. And so Jesus says, listen, man, the father is the gardener. He's going to sovereignly work through your circumstances so that you might bring new life as a disciple. And if you and I are experiencing amazing fruit in our life, like disciples being made and churches being planted, what does scripture say that he rewards us with? More pruning. More pruning. I mean, that's what the Lord does. He just continues to prune. He continues to work so that we might look more and more like Jesus. And so the Apostle Paul tells the Ephesian elders, the church, and us, listen, be on guard for yourself. Allow the the sovereign gardener to work in your life to cut away at stuff that brings death so that new life may come so that you might look more and more like Jesus. The second thing that Paul says about to be on alert or to be on guard, he says this, In verse 30, men will rise up even from your own number and distort the truth to lure the disciples into following them. That word distort means to make crooked. You know, a lot of times I think we think about the enemy coming to us and it's just going to be like this all out lie, you know, like Jesus isn't real, you know, Jesus isn't God. But Paul says that men and women are going to rise up from and they're just going to, they're going to distort it a little bit. They're just going to make it uh, a little bit not truthful. I don't know if you guys have followed politics over the past couple of years, but I think you and I would both agree that our nation is becoming more and more polarized. Um, even on social media, you guys have Twitter wars, you have, you know, Facebook wars, and, and you can see even presidents and leaders that instead of solving problems in our nation, they're having these wars on social media, right, that feed into our culture. And, and even the term fake news has been coined in our generation over the past couple of years. One interesting story that came out a couple years ago is that there was a protest that was actually held in Dallas. And it was a protest rally between two groups. I'm pretty sure one was a Black Lives Matter group and the other was an alt-right group. And what happened is they started as these Facebook groups. And as tension rose on Facebook, they began battling each other. Uh, they began to get more, more and more aggressive. And it, and it spilled out into an actual protest rally on the streets of Dallas. The interesting thing about that story is that those groups were started by two of the same Russian people in an office in Russia. And it was completely fake. 
completely fake. And actually, this has happened more often than not, because what the, what, what the enemies of our nation know, that a divided nation is a weak nation. And so they spill these fake things that look real, but they're not real, but people respond to them as if they are real, and they begin to destroy lives. And church, I'm telling you, that is exactly how the enemy works in our life. We think about what Paul says about men and women who distort the gospel, and we think that they're going to be these sleazy wolves that come in, and they're trying to you know, take advantage of you, and, and they're dressed in black, and they might look like the Grim Reaper, but a lot of times they just look like the American dream. A lot of times they just look like seculars and that tell you need to be a better version of yourself and not die to yourself for the sake of the gospel. A lot of times it just looks like the prosperity gospel. It says that Christianity is about making you healthy, wealthy, and rich instead of making you a vessel, as we sang this morning, spilled out for the sake of the gospel. And so Paul says, be on guard. Because sometimes if we're not careful, we'll just sprinkle a little bit of gospel on a lot of bit of false teaching. It's how I used to eat healthy, actually. You guys ever done that? It's like... I'm just going to go out and I'm going to eat all these donuts. And if I eat an apple, totally takes care of everything else I eat. I mean, that's exactly what I believed. And I think a lot of times we think if we just consume and we allow a bunch of false teaching, but we go to church here, we listen to this song here, that it's going to take the rest of all the untruth that we've been believing. And it doesn't. It doesn't. The New Testament says that there is a healthy way to look at the gospel. There is a sound way to look at the gospel. And so you might be asking yourself, man, well, pastor or a friend, like, how do I actually be on guard? How do I be on guard against false truth? And how do I do that in my own life? Because a lot of times Satan will come to you with something that looks really good and really enticing, but it's actually there's a hook behind it. And I think the scripture is very clear that sin is false advertising, right? Sin over promises and under delivers. Heresy and false teaching will over promise and under deliver. Remember one time I was in uh, I was in Taiwan and my wife and I were there for our first anniversary, and I was trying to be a good loving husband. And it said went to the spa and it said, hey, you know Chinese massage. You know I was like, oh, this is gonna be great. So I bought the Chinese massage and I was sitting in the spa and I said, Allison, you know, there's this advertisement that said Chinese mas- massage. I thought you'd love it. So once you just go in there and I'll, and I'll see you in a little bit. 30 minutes later, and I'm sitting there the whole time thinking, man, I really did good. This is our first anniversary. I nailed it. Like, this is going to bless her. And we've been in Taiwan for about nine months. She comes out. Her hair is all, like, scattered everywhere. Her face is obviously not happy. She's not running. She's not skipping to give me a hug or a kiss. She walks up to me. She says, don't ever do that again, please. And so what I what I realized is that Chinese massage is very different than massage in our culture. I mean, people, she said people, it's, it's the harder the better. I mean, it's a good massage, but she said people are, her knees are on her back. She said at one point she almost blacked out because someone's hand is in her temple and, and things like that. And so if we're not careful, you guys, we will buy into that same kind of false advertisement or this overpromise underdeliver of sin. That sin will come to you and say, man, if you give into this or you buy into this, you will be more happy. You will be more free. You will be more, be more of yourself. But it always overpromises and underdelivers. And so what I want to tell you guys is that there is a real clarity of the gospel. And I want to give us just, just some really, for me, it's been helpful. If you guys go to 1 John chapter 4, we're going to sit there just for a minute because Jesus and, and John lay out some things that I think that are helpful for us if we want to battle false teaching and disbelief in our heart. Because I don't know about you guys, but I struggle with this. I mean, there are thoughts that come in my mind. There are feelings that I have that I know are, are right. But at times, I don't really know how to battle them. At times, I don't really know how to deal with those things. You know, Henry Nowen says this, that there are these three lies that the enemy will always bring in our lives. Number one, I am what I have. Number two, I am what I do. And number three, I am what other people say about me. 
And that's what the enemy will always use. He'll continue to use to destroy your confidence in who Jesus is and what he's done. And so in 1 John chapter 4, he says this. We're going to be in verses 2 and 3. This is how you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God, but every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. The way that we battle, the way that we guard ourselves against what Paul says people distort the gospel is by relying on the power of the Holy Spirit that lives inside of us. When Jesus was teaching his disciples about the Holy Spirit, he says that the Holy Spirit does two things. Number one, he comes and he glorifies Christ. And number two, he reminds us of who he is and all that he said and done. In 1 John 4, John tells us the same thing, that every spirit or every teaching or every thought or every feeling that you have that confesses the truth about the gospel, it's of Jesus. But every spirit, every thought, every teaching, maybe every feeling you have that does not confess the truth about who God is, what he's done in Jesus and who you are because of that, it's not of Christ. And so I think for us, what we have to do and what we should do is we should take stock of what we think about, what we feel about, and we need to hold it up to the truth of the gospel, who God is and what he's done through Jesus and who we are because of that, that Jesus's life, death and resurrection has completely changed everything for us. And so maybe you have this thought about who you are instead of just completely believing that or accepting that man, compare that to the truth of who God is and what he's done, and who you are in light of that. And if it does not testify to the truth of the gospel, don't receive it. Maybe you have this feeling about your spouse or your kids or your brother or your friend. If that feeling doesn't line up with the truth of who God is and what he's done in Jesus and who that person is in light of that, you need to reject it because that's Satan trying to distort the gospel. Or maybe you're hearing a teaching or hearing a message from someone preaching the Bible and it doesn't testify to the gospel of who God is and what he's done in Jesus and who we are because of that, John and Jesus would say, reject that because the spirit of God, what he's going to do, he's going to make much of me. And so, man, for me, you guys, what this looks like for my life is there are days when I struggle for real. I struggle to believe that I'm loved by God. I believe that it's, that's what I do that makes me worthy. It's, it's what I've accomplished that's make me valuable before him. And this is what I've begun to do and I, and I plead with you to do the same, is, is begin to ask the Holy Spirit, man, would you just preach to me right now about who Jesus is? Just preach to me, Holy Spirit. Preach to me about his, his, his worth. Preach to me about what he's done on the cross. Preach to me about his resurrection. Preach to me about that I'm his child, that I'm adopted, that, I, that I'm loved by him, not because of anything I've done, but all because of what he's done for me. Would you preach to me right now, Holy Spirit? And the Holy Spirit is faithful to testify and to make much of Christ. And so Paul tells the Ephesian elders, not only just be on guard for yourself in personal holiness and looking more like Jesus, but be on guard as well in truth. And so everything that we hear, everything that we feel, everything that we might think about other people, we have got to hold it up to the truth of the gospel, who God is, what he's done, and who we are in light of that. Finally, Paul closes in the last couple of verses, verse 32, he says this, And now I commit you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and give you an inheritance among all those who are sanctified. And so Paul tells us, number one, if we want to live a life poured out for the sake of the gospel, we don't live it, uh, we don't live our lives for our own egos. 
our own self. We don't count our lives as valuable to ourselves. We only count them as valuable for the sake of the gospel. And number two, we need to be on guard. We need to be alert on our own personal lives, to live lives that demand a gospel response, maybe in your workplace or in in your neighborhoods, to live a life that demands a gospel response. You need to be on guard about truth of the gospel, to guard the deposit of the gospel that has been preached and given to us. And then finally, what's interesting about what Paul says here, I find it very interesting, is that in two places where Paul knows he's going to die, right here in Acts chapter 20, and the other one in Second Timothy. If you're not familiar with the New Testament, Timothy was like a son to Paul. And Paul writes him this final letter. And right here, as Paul is beginning to say these words, you know that tears are probably welling up in his eyes. He knows that he's not going to see these men again. He knows that he's going to die. And he's seen them come to Christ. He's seen their families being completely transformed. And in both of those places, he says the exact same thing. Be strengthened, or I commit you to the grace of God. The grace of God. He doesn't say, I now entrust you to your own works or your own actions, your own effort, or your own ability to, to even be on guard for yourself. Or I don't even entrust you to your own ability to even uh, guard the gospel. What I entrust you to, what I commit you to is the grace of God. The grace of God completely manifested in the person and work of Jesus Christ. See, Paul knows, like anybody else, is that you and I, we will live our lives as two same realities, but in the same person, that we're both a sinner, but we're both saved by grace. Paul, as he gets closer to his death, he says that he is the foremost sinner. And one thing that I will tell you, and and I'll tell myself, is that as we grow in Christ, one of the things that we're going to grow in is an awareness of our own sin. I mean, we're just going to grow in an awareness of how different, how other Jesus is, and how broken we are. But I'll tell you, if we don't understand and we don't believe the grace of God, we will be living under the pressure and the weight of our own sin. And what we do in those moments when we feel the weight of our sin, we either respond in legalism, which means we're going to try to make ourselves right before God by our religion, going to church, even reading the Bible, or doing our own things to make ourselves worthy before him, or we're going to do it in a way that says, well, actually God's holiness doesn't matter. I can live life however I want, and my sin isn't a big deal. But Paul says that I entrust you to the grace of God, the good news of the gospel. And the good news of the gospel, you guys, is that you and I, we have right standing before God. We've been justified And that means that when God looks at us and we meet him face to face one day, the only thing that we can offer him, the only reason that we have right relationship with him is not because we go to church. It's not because we even pray. It's not because we read the Bible. It's not because we got baptized at one point when we were six years old at youth camp. It's none of those things. The only reason that we are justified and welcomed and accepted before the father is because of the blood of Jesus Christ, his finished work on the cross and his resurrection. That's the only thing that the Bible says. The other word that the Bible uses, um, the opposite of justification in the Bible is called condemnation. And this is where we're going to close. But you've maybe heard that word, condemnation, condemned. It's a building term. And what happens is when surveyors come and look at buildings or, or homes, they'll inspect the building and they'll look at it. And if it's, if it's like broken down and the walls are busted in, the floors all broken up, man, they're going to say, this building's condemned. It's unfit for use. And I'm telling you, that's exactly what the enemy does to you. He comes to you. He looks at your brokenness. He looks at your mistakes. Man, he looks at the ways that you have, you have missed it and you have failed. And he will tell you, you are broken. You are unfit for use. But you know what the gospel says? Jesus comes to that same building. Jesus looks at that same house, that same vessel, which is you and I. He sees the broken building. He sees the walls. 
I'm telling you, he sees way more than you and I even see. That I am way more messed up than I even see. He looks at that same thing and he says, this house is not condemned, but it is fit for a king. And I'm going to move into it. My spirit is going to move into it. And it's going to be a place where people can find hope and healing and, and the gospel where people can be transformed and communities can be changed. And that's what it means to be entrusted to the gospel of God's grace. And so church, man, I just, I just leave this before you. That if you and I want to live our lives poured out for the sake of the gospel, we've got to be people that ultimately are enamored and in awe of the grace of God. That people that have been used in the kingdom that I look up to, they've been people that as they grow older, there's one thing that they, there's one thing that they always say. God's grace is so big. God's grace is so huge. I'm so amazed that God could use someone like me. And so if our lives are increasingly more impressed with ourselves and not with God, we're missing it. We should grow in more, being more impressed with the grace of God and less of ourselves. And so this morning, I know we have time to respond. Um, I don't know where you're at, but maybe, maybe you're here and, and maybe you're like me where um, you've, you've lived your life for the sake of your own ego. That maybe you feel like there's a call in your life and it's more about you and not about God. I'm telling you, that's not the call of God. God's call in your life will be all about his glory, not our own. So maybe you just need to repent and say, man, God, I've lived life for a shallow ego, and I want to live life completely abandoned, surrendered to the gospel. Use me however you see fit. Or maybe you're someone who uh, you haven't been on guard and you haven't watched your life very well, and so there are things and areas of your life that you're living that you know is against what Scripture calls us to live like, and maybe you've used the Bible as a magnifying glass in other people's sin, but you haven't used it as a mirror in your own. And he needs to repent and say, Lord, man, just, just help me be encouraged, convicted, changed by your word. Or maybe you're someone who, yeah, you've, you've bought into a lie, a false teaching of the gospel, and you've been gospelish. And maybe you never even believe the gospel. Maybe you're here this morning and you've come to church your whole life, but you have never actually believed on the finished work of Jesus Christ. Man, would you believe that this morning and be changed? Or maybe finally you're someone who you're, you're living under the weight of your own sin and all you've been able to do is try to work really hard. And so you go to church, you pray, you read, you, you do good things, you try to be a good person because you believe one day when you stand before God, he's going to look at all those things and he says, wow, I'm really impressed. But he won't be. He's only impressed with what his son did. So maybe you've been feeling the weight of that. Man, would you just believe and accept that Jesus has finished everything on your behalf? everything so that we can live freely and abundantly in his life let me pray for us and uh, we'll respond i know there's people that would love to pray with you here you can respond to the holy spirit how you see fit let's pray father we thank you for the gospel man that sets us free Lord, as these songs we sang earlier and other songs that we're no longer slaves to sin no longer slaves to fear but we're fully loved fully accepted adopted children sons and daughters of god Lord, I know in my own life, I don't really believe grace works. Sometimes I believe religion and legalism is more of a motivator than grace. But God, you have explicitly shown us that grace transforms, defeats sin. God, overcomes evil. And we thank you for that grace this morning. The Holy Spirit, minister to your people. We love you so much, God. Thank you for this church, Lord. May they be a house that continues to ex- receive your grace, Lord, and extend your grace to this community. Lord, to push back the darkness, not through works of their own, but through the finished work of Jesus Christ. 
It's powerful, Lord. We love you. Amen.